Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. In darkness, you only have your nocturnal instincts to rely on. Ultimate, Ultimate Disc in the Dark, the electric, stimulating new game that's sweeping San Fierro. It's a non-contact contact sport where you throw a flying disc in the dark. I got it. Oh, get him. It's a new competitive sport for the uncompetitive, an aggressive, action-packed game for those who love nature and living on the edge. It's harder than football. It's faster than rugby. It's about throwing a plastic disc and catching it. Pitch, then catch, run to the goal, and score. Ultimate disc in the dark. Just like a real sport, only we made it up, and it has a great social side. Uh, Oh, my God. What team are you on? I'm on the other team. Me, too. Ah, take that, silly. But if you catch it, you got to know what to do with it. Some will struggle. Some will submit. Everyone is laughing but it's your quest to come out on top this is a great excuse for some serious fun and a way to meet people like you and never see them again league games begin at sunset every night in san fierro civic park or start your own game and because it's night it's not too embarrassing to play a strip version come and play ultimate disc in the dark It's a career that lasts a lifetime. A career where you're always on the winning team. Put your skills to work in the military. I was on the streets in a gang shooting people and running drugs. Now, I'm making something of myself. I kill people and run drugs for the CIA. In this job, you not only help yourself, you help your country. Only in the military would a teenager be given responsibilities like driving a nuclear submarine, maneuvering a tank, or dropping high ordnance explosives. Make a change for yourself in the military. I was in college constantly getting into pointless fights I didn't understand about nebulous concepts and belief systems. I got tired of arguing about what's right, so I dropped out of college and joined up. Now I know I'm right in the military. Learn confidence. I was having fantasies about stabbing people. Now I can do it for my country. Live the military life. Positions are unexpectedly vacant every day. In fact, I'm about to give up my well-paid job as a voiceover actor in order to sign up and be shouted at by a lot of sexually confused skinheads. I want want excitement and what could be more exciting than shitting yourself while getting shot at in the jungle certainly beats sitting in this booth all day be number one turn your life around in the military ladies and gentlemen welcome back to another exciting episode of the halloween special of anthology of horror as i said before i'm your host and narrator springheeled jack and we're going to get started today with another story by my favorite online author as of late wound liquor titled i was kidnapped by my doppelganger. My life before the incident wasn't perfect, but I was happy. My career was going well. I had a steady boyfriend who I loved, a good network of close friends and family, a beloved pet, hobbies and activities which I enjoyed and brought me fulfillment, and hopes for a bright future. I still suffered from anxieties, of course, both rational and irrational fears, the occasional crisis of confidence and the awful feeling that I didn't deserve to be happy, that I was nothing more than an imposter in my own life. But I think this is a common enough fear for anybody who isn't entirely self-obsessed or delusional. There's even a name for it. Imposter Syndrome. 
It's a cliche, but we can all be our own worst enemy at times, holding a negative self-image which is at odds with how the rest of the world views us. For most, the inner demons of anxiety and depression are just a metaphor, a monster which only exists in our own head. But that was not the case for me. Because I came face to face with my bad side, a physical, living, breathing, and walking doppelganger embodying all of my very worst emotions and impulses, including some I didn't even know that I had. Not only did I meet my evil double, but I was assaulted and kidnapped by her, held as a prisoner in my own home. It's crazy and unbelievable, but all true, and this terrifying episode has changed my life forever, and this is my story. It all started one Saturday morning, a seemingly normal day. It was my day off and I was spending it relaxing at home, lounging on the couch with Archie, my beloved black lab, by my side, when suddenly my doorbell rang. Archie's reaction was my first warning that something wasn't right. Now, Archie was always a friendly dog and he liked people, but on that morning, he went crazy, barking aggressively and snarling in the direction of the front door as soon as the bell rang. His behavior on that morning was very out of character, and now I realize he was trying to warn me of the impending danger. If only I had listened to my faithful companion. Instead, I locked him in the living room while I went to answer the door. I wasn't expecting company, and so suspected my visitor was a delivery driver of some variety, and I feared what Archie might do to him while he was all riled up. So I shut my dog in the living room, shushing him as, I con as he continued to bark loudly and scratch at the door desperately trying to escape out into the corridor. Understandably, I still felt apprehensive, and so I opened the door ever so slightly with the safety chain in place. What I saw standing on my doorstep took my breath away and brought an ice-cold chill down my spine. The person standing on the other side of the door was me, or at least bore a striking resemblance to me. She looked considerably older and frailer, however, and I reckon she had about 20 years on me. Her hair was gray and straggly, and her skin was wrinkled. The clothes she wore were dirty and ripped, her shoes worn out and falling apart. She was also unnaturally thin, almost to the point of being emaciated. When she saw me through the crack in the door, the mysterious woman shot me a crooked smile, and I noticed how her teeth were yellow and chipped. But despite her bedraggled appearance, the woman still looked uncannily like me, right down to her cheekbones and facial expression and that was before I looked into her eyes. They were an exact replica of my own, a dark hazel brown. I could have been looking into a mirror, it was unreal. But the deeper I stared into those eyes, the more I saw the malice behind them, a malicious intent that put me even more on edge. The mysterious woman didn't say a word, she just stood on the doorstep staring at me with those impossible eyes and retaining a crooked smile. I was so shocked and taken aback that I struggled to speak, mumbling my words through shaking lips. Can I help you, ma'am? I realized how ridiculous my question must have sounded, so I was hardly surprised when my visitor responded with mocking laughter. When she spoke, her voice was deep and raspy, like that of somebody who smoked way too much for too many years. She sounds like old spring-heeled Jack, apparently. Well, I sure hope so, sweetie, she answered. What happened next remained something of a blur in my memory. It was so completely unexpected. For a woman who appeared so physically frail, she acted with extraordinary, almost superhuman speed and strength. She charged forward, striking my solid oak door with her shoulder, 
In an instant, I was thrown backwards as the metal chain broke like it was made of paper and the door swung open. I hit the ground hard, banging my head against the tiles. I wanted to cry out for help, but found myself unable to speak. I suppose I was in a state of shock. My wicked double coolly marched into my home, still smiling in a cruel mockery as she looked down upon me, her helpless victim. I found I couldn't stand, and so I crawled backwards into, in a pitiful attempt to escape her grasp. All the time I could hear Archie barking maniacally, clawing at the shut living room door in a desperate attempt to get out. My faithful companion would protect me, if only I could reach him. But my attacker anticipated my next move, and she acted first, reaching out with her bony arms and roughly pulling me onto my feet, exerting impossible strength as she pinned me to the wall. Her face was so close to mine that I could smell her foul breath, and it made me wretch. I knew that she meant to hurt me. My fear was all-encompassing at this point. I could hardly breathe, let alone speak, but somehow... I managed to open my quaking lips and mutter just one word. Please. But my pleas for mercy fell on deaf ears. In fact, my appeal only seemed to anger her. I remained pinned to the wall as my wretched double screwed her face up in a rage, spitting her hate-filled words through clenched teeth. Shut up, bitch, she snarled. A second later, she literally flung me across the corridor, forcing my head to collide with the hard wall at an immense speed. I felt a shooting pain inside my skull as my body fell and then everything went black. I awoke some time later. It could have been minutes or it could have been hours. There was no way to, no way to tell. I felt weak and I felt groggy. My head was pounding. It took me a moment to fight through the pain and open my eyes, adjusting my sight to take in my surroundings. I discovered that I was in my living room, sitting on my couch, but something wasn't right. I tried to lift my arms, but I couldn't. When I glanced down behind me, I saw that my hands were bound with duct tape. Looking down, I noted my ankles were also bound together. I tried to scream, but my cries were muffled by a tight gag over my mouth. My attacker had tied me up while I was unconscious, taking me hostage in my own living room. My mind was racing as I struggled in vain against my binds, whimpering pathetically as an intense panic almost overcame me. Suddenly, I looked up and saw my kidnapper approaching from the far side of the room. The cruel smile was still plastered across her face, but her appearance had changed significantly. She was no longer emaciated and frail like before, but instead she appeared young and healthy. In fact, she now looked practically identical to me, even down to the clothes she wore and the way her hair was styled. Before, the woman had looked like an older relative, but now she could have been my identical twin. But there was something different which I could see, even if nobody else could. There was a wickedness behind her hazel-colored eyes, an evil that wasn't present inside of me. It chilled me to the very bones to look upon her, yet I couldn't understand why this was happening and how it was even possible. But there was worse to come. My kidnapper's sadistic grin widened as she nodded towards the corner of the room, prompting me to look in that direction. I glanced across to Archie's bed and recoiled in horror. Seeing my beloved companion lying totally still in his cot, his neck broken and twisted in the most unnatural manner. I knew straight away that he was dead. I never understood what you saw in that filthy mutt, my attacker gloated. I've always hated animals myself. Tears ran down my cheeks as the grief overtook me. 
I wanted to cry out in agony and rage, but the tight gag over my mouth muffled my screams. I experienced an immense pressure building inside my skull and felt myself drifting away, losing consciousness once again and returning to darkness. I woke up for the second time due to a series of short, sharp pains. I yelped in disarray and slowly opened my eyes, realizing that my captor was repeatedly slapping me across the face. Stop it, I exclaimed, suddenly realizing that I was no longer gagged. As my eyes refocused, I saw that hateful face staring back at me, the wicked smile still etched across her lips. Wakey, wakey, princess, she said in a mocking tone. I opened my mouth to speak, but she stopped me, holding a single finger up to my lips. Don't you dare scream, she threatened, or I'll make you regret it. I swallowed as my whole body trembled. It was obvious that this wasn't an idle threat, and so I didn't dare utter a word. Next, she lifted a plastic water bottle, holding it up to my bone-dry lips. Drink, she ordered. It was the first act of kindness that she'd shown me, and I should have suspected a trick, but I was dehydrated, and so I gladly accepted the water, gulping it down as she held the bottle up for me. I was still bound with duct tape, and so expected my captor to reapply the gag once I'd finished drinking, but she didn't do so. Instead, she allowed me to speak for the first time. You have questions? Speak now or forever hold your peace, she said. My mind was racing and part of me still couldn't believe this was happening. It seemed like a very vivid nightmare, but the physical pain I felt was all too real. There were so many questions inside of my head, but I asked the two most obvious. Who are you and why are you doing this to me? My captor laughed in open mockery. Don't you get it, you moron? I'm you, or rather, a version of you. I'm the girl you've always wanted to be, deep down in the darkest recesses of your mind. I'm the side of you who bullied kids at school, who cheated on tests, shoplifted, broke boys' hearts. I'm the version of you who would screw over your best friend to get ahead in your career and wouldn't feel the slightest bit bad about it. And that's only the half of it. I'm capable of things you could only imagine in your worst nightmares. You saw what I did to your dog. I gulped again, my eyes welling up with tears once again as I remembered what this monster had done to poor Archie. And why am I doing this, she continued. It's because I hate you. I despise everything that you are and all you pretend to be. I hate your weakness, your self-doubt, your neediness, and I hate how you always need to prove yourself to show you're a quote-unquote good person. That's right, bitch. I've been watching you all this time, resenting you more and more every day. Tell you what, now, bitch, I've had enough of you screwing up your life. I'm taking over, and I'm going to do a much better job of living than you ever could. I was left speechless by her hate-filled rant. I just couldn't understand how any of this was possible. It was like she'd reached inside of my head and revealed my deepest and darkest secrets and desires, knowing about things I've never told anybody about. It was totally unbelievable, but I couldn't deny what was occurring in front of my very own eyes. I realized how much danger I must be in and so struggled to ask my next question through trembling lips. Are you going to kill me? I whispered. She laughed again, louder this time. Why would I do something like that? She asked. A moment later, she roughly grabbed hold of me, dragging me off the couch and across the floor, out into the corridor and to my waiting prison. I must have been unconscious for longer than I thought because my captor had been busy while I was out of it. I have a storage cupboard in my home, no more than six feet by four feet and without any windows. 
My captor had converted this tiny room into a cell of sorts, padlocking the door from the outside and affixing a chain to the wall that was linked to a sturdy collar around my neck. To complete my humiliation, she served my food and water in the bowls I had for Archie and forced me to use a a slop-out bucket to go to the toilet. I was chained up and left to live in my own filth. This would be my hellish prison for the next six weeks, while, meanwhile, my evil doppelganger was having the time of her fucking life. Now, you might wonder why nobody missed me during my month and a half absence. After all, I had family, friends, and a boyfriend who all cared about me. But, of course, as far as they knew, I wasn't missing because my double was out there pretending to be me, and apparently nobody could tell the difference. And damn, that bitch really screwed up my life. She destroyed precious relationships which had taken me years to build up all in a few short weeks. I know all this happened because she told me. It wasn't enough to keep me chained up in a prison cell, she also took pleasure in tormenting me. Sometimes her attacks were physical, as she punched and kicked me while I curled up in the fetal position. But these beatings were rare and not really her style. My captor was more into dolling out psychological torture making me feel like I was less than nothing and attempting to remove my last glimmer of hope. I can't really describe how vile and disgusting it was inside of that closet, where I remained for weeks, eating whatever gruel she decided to give me and having nothing but a bucket for all my bodily functions. I spent most of my time sleeping upon the one pillow I was permitted. After a while, I realized I had no energy and I was tired all the time. I began to suspect that she was drugging my food and water to keep me weak and docile. I also worried that I would become sick as a result of my unsanitary conditions, but I could have dealt with all that had it not been for the terrible things she whispered to me through the door late at night. My double enjoyed telling me about the awful stuff she'd done out in the world while pretending to be me. She described in detail how she'd broken up with my boyfriend, making sure to humiliate him in the process telling him he was a loser who would never find happiness. Apparently, he was in tears by the time it was over, totally broken and humiliated. I was devastated when she told me and filled with rage, but there was nothing I could do, and of course the bitch didn't stop there. She dumped my lifelong friends, telling them they were no good and she no longer needed them, and she started a blazing fight with my parents, telling mom and dad that she'd always resented their interference in her, or rather my life, and saying she never wanted to hear from either one of them again. She knew how much my relationships with my family and friends had meant to me and took great pleasure in destroying them and telling me what she had done. Slowly but surely, my evil double was unraveling my very existence and removing my presence from my own life. It's difficult to describe exactly what that feels like, but my doppelganger was only just getting started. Once she'd cleared the deck, she made a whole new set of friends and really started enjoying her new life, while making sure to rub my nose in it. Late night parties became a regular occurrence. She made sure I was securely bound and gagged before any visitors came into the home in case I tried to cry out for help. Although I doubt anybody would have noticed if I had. The loud music and rowdy partying would continue into the early hours, all while I was tied up in my closet, imagining what a mess these strangers were making of my home. Other nights she would come home late, bringing a man with her, and she'd proceed to have very loud sex in my bed, gleefully telling me all about her sexual encounters the morning after. I had many long hours and days to think during my captivity, and despite all the misery and pain she'd inflicted on me, I believed the worst thing was the fear I held in my heart, 
the fear that she was actually doing a better job of living my life than I ever had. I was being erased from the world, and I had this awful feeling that it wouldn't even matter if I stopped existing. These were my lowest moments, when I felt like giving up the most, thinking I would simply stop eating and drinking and let myself die. But even as I grew physically weaker day by day, I retained a fiery defiance in my heart. I still had hope, because I came to realize there was a reason that I was still alive, and one day, I decided to confront her with the truth. She came to me that morning, as always, as she always did, to bring my food and water and empty my shit bucket, making sure to get in a few insults while she was doing so. But on that morning, I wasn't playing her game. Why? I asked her in an accusatory tone. She was standing by the open closet door. My hands were unbound, but I was still secured by the thick collar around my neck, affixed to a chain that restricted my movements. Why what? She shot back in irritation. Why don't you just kill me, I asked. Why go to all this effort just to keep me alive and in captivity? She rolled her eyes before replying. I've already told you. Yes, yes, I interrupted. You enjoy torturing me. That much is obvious, but there's another reason, isn't there? I know the truth now. We're linked. Our relationship is symbiotic. As I grow weaker, you get stronger, but you still need me. If I die, you die too. Isn't that the truth? As much as you hate me, you need to keep me alive. I could tell straight away that I'd struck a nerve. My captor's face screwed up in anger, and I reacted the only and she reacted the only way she knew how, by flying into a violent rage. She stormed forward, reaching out to strike me, but I acted first, grabbing her hair and pulling hard. She cried in pain and surprise before breaking free. And then she struck back, punching and kicking me as, as I rolled up into a ball in a futile attempt to protect myself. I felt every blow, the pain reverberating throughout my body. Her attack was so fierce that I feared she might take it too far, but she eventually stopped, leaving me battered and bruised, but still in one piece. Listen, bitch, she snarled through clenched teeth. I might need you alive, but there's a lot of bad shit I can do. I can permanently disfigure you, chop off one of your arms. The limit is my imagination. You've had it easy so far. Think on that. After the threat, she left me beaten and bloodied, slamming the door and locking me in. But as soon as she did so, I smiled and silently celebrated my triumph. Because my nemesis had fallen for my trick. Yes, I'd caught a beating, but I'd also managed to pull out a hairpin and secure it in the palm of my hand. And now I had means of escape. Now as you've probably guessed, picking a lock with a hairpin isn't as easy as it looks in the movies, especially when you're weak and half-starved. Working in the dark, and the lock, is a collar around your own neck. It was a long, and it was a frustrating process, and all the time I feared my captor would realize the hairpin was missing and come to get me. But I persevered, and eventually got free. Experiencing an elation like none other when I finally heard the click of the lock popping open. The first part of my plan had worked, but the difficult bit was still to come. I didn't sleep at all that night, and I didn't touch the food and water she'd left me. I couldn't risk being affected by whatever drug she'd put in them. I struggled to control my nerves as I waited for her to come in the next morning. The tension was unbearable. I knew that this was my only chance at escape. I jumped up when I heard the footsteps, followed by the clinking of metal as my captor worked the padlock. The adrenaline was pumping through my veins. I knew she was strong, but I had the element of surprise on my side and a week's worth of rage built up inside of me. 
I prepared myself as the door slowly opened, the light creeping in from the corridor, and I leapt as soon as I saw her, attacking with all my strength and anger that I could muster. I'll never forget the look on her face in that moment, one of shock and terror. I savored it as I launched my attack, screaming in righteous fury as I jumped onto my captor, pushing her down to the floor. What followed was a vicious, visceral fight as we both struggled for our very lives. To be honest, the whole thing is something of a violent blur in my memory. I recall the fear that I had that she would overpower me, but I fought like a wild animal, getting on top of my kidnapper and slamming her head repeatedly against the hard floor until she stopped resisting. Then I jumped up onto my feet and ran to the kitchen, grabbing the largest steak knife in my possession before running back into the corridor, pinning my doppelganger down as I lifted my knife, preparing to stab. She was still breathing, still alive, but incapacitated. All I needed to do was plunge the knife into her heart and I'd be free of this bitch. But I stopped myself at the last second, suddenly realizing what, what the consequences would be. I dropped the knife and started to cry uncontrollably, as all my emotions spilled out at once. Life since the incident hasn't been easy, and I know I'll never get back to the way that things were before. I was able to wash the dirt off my skin and change into fresh clothes, and my injuries healed up before long. But the psychological scars proved harder to erase. I still wake up screaming during the night as I imagine being chained back up inside that fucking cupboard. No doubt, I'm probably suffering from PTSD, but I've not been able to seek professional help. How would I explain all this to a therapist? I've spent months trying to repair the damage my doppelganger did while pretending to be me. I lost my job and was nearly evicted from my home. I've spent so much time and energy trying to re rebuild bridges and making amends for actions I wasn't even responsible for. I apologized to my parents, saying that I hadn't been myself and didn't mean the terrible things that I'd said. Thankfully, they forgave me. I've also been able to rebuild some of my friendships, but others have proved beyond repair. My ex-boyfriend won't even return my calls. I'll never forgive that bitch for the way she treated him. But the worst thing is that I'm still not free from her, and I, and I fear that I never will be. I realized in that moment when I was holding the knife over her chest. I couldn't kill her, not because I felt pity for the monster, but because we're still connected, and if she dies, I'll die too. I racked my brains while she was unconscious, trying to think of a solution, but in the end there was only one thing I could do, and now my evil doppelganger has taken my place, chained up in a locked closet waiting for me to feed and empty her shit bucket. As evil as she is, I don't like doing this to her. I dread every morning when I have to open the locked door and see her chained up, listening to her abuse and threats. I've tried to be a more humane jailer than she was, but the woman is dangerous and I need to take every precaution to prevent her escape, knowing all too well the damage she would do if she got free. You may judge me harshly, but deep down I'm not a bad person and I've only taken this course of action because I had no other choice. People go to great lengths to control the demons inside of their head and to keep the dark side from coming to the surface. The only difference is that my demon is a living and breathing person but I need to control her nonetheless. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to check on my prisoner. Ah, I can't get this flower out. What's wrong now? I need something to get the flower out for these little tiny miniature pancakes. How about this? Wow, a tiny spoon, how cute! Where did you get that? At Blotto's, of course. 
Plato's. We've got all kinds of helpful accessories for the kitchen. Cooking something up on the road? Come check out our portable kits that bakers love. Blotto's, we make daily habits fun. You two need to get a room. No, we don't. Renegade. Oh, God, you smell incredible. Maybe I'll join in. Renegade Cologne, for the man who wants to reek of masculinity. Nobody tells a renegade what to do. Sir, that tree is not a bathroom. Oh, really? Oh, not on my shoes! Renegade. The renegade man goes where he wants for the smell of an individual. It's Renegade. Or instead of Renegade, try Sweat. The cologne for the animal inside. It's real sweat. Because nothing attracts women like a sweaty man. Alright. Here's another one from Wound Liquor called, For 30 years I've been re receiving letters from a land that doesn't exist. I've always held a fascination with the sea the vast blue oceans that account for two-thirds of the Earth's surface. I grew up on the west coast of Ireland, enjoying pristine and almost abandoned beaches facing out onto the cold and wild waters of the North Atlantic. My father served in the Merchant Navy for many years, and he taught me how to sail. It was from him that I learned about navigation, tides, and currents. Dad had many tales of adventures on the high seas, exotic locations, beautiful scenery and wildlife, but also of danger and tragedy. And I'm sure also of one-legged prostitutes and exotic venereal disease. I've heard stories. I know what sailors get up to. He always warned me that the sea is treacherous and it can drive you insane if you let it. I wasn't put off, however, and spent much of my childhood dreaming of escape and adventure. I often wished I'd been born in an earlier time when so much of the world was still a mystery, a blank space on the map, if you will. Having grown up in the latter half of the 20th century, I assumed that everything on the planet had already been discovered. As it turned out, I was wrong. I'm now a fully grown man in his early 40s. My naive and youthful exuberance has faded over the years. Nevertheless, I'm... Never settled down. Instead, I enjoy moving from place to place, continent to continent, wherever the opportunity arises. My life has been shaped by wanderlust and a yearning for adventure, but there has been one thing I've inexplicably not been able to escape, no matter how far I travel. Somehow I always manage to find me, no matter how far I go. I often think back to that fateful day 30 years ago when the 11-year-old me made a decision based on naivety and a youthful sense of wonder. To be fair to my younger self, there's no way I could have predicted the long-term implications of my decision. If only I had known what I was getting myself into, but there's no way to turn back the clock. And now, as I face the end and feel nothing but fear and regret, I choose to share my story in the hope it will prevent others from making the same fuck-ups. This tale begins on a hot summer's day back in 1991. I was taking our family dog, Skipper, on his morning walk. Skip was a Labrador, very loyal, and with bags of energy. Obviously, he's no longer around, but I still have great memories growing up with him. We walked along a lonely stretch of beach close to my home. As I previously said, I grew up on the west coast of Ireland, a beautiful part of the world and an amazing place to be a child and 
but not so great when you come of age and start looking for work. Our local beach was out of the way and rarely visited. This was before the tourist trade took off, of course, and hidden gems like our little beaches were still protected from mobs of tourists. That morning I was enjoying the sunny weather and clear skies, a rare enough thing anywhere in Ireland, and Skipper was having the time of his life. I let him off the leash to run the sands while I looked out to the sea, daydreaming of adventure and escape. I was brought back to reality by the sound of Skip's loud barking. I saw him at the water's edge, the tide washing over his paws as he struggled to dig something out of the sand. I suspected it was nothing more than a piece of driftwood, but curiosity got the better of me as I jogged across the sand. Here, boy, I called, prompting Skip to come off and end his barking frenzy, although he continued to keep a close eye on the object. Looking over, I saw a green glass bottle washed up and half buried in the sand. The top of said bottle was sealed with a cork, making it watertight, and inside appeared to be a rolled-up parchment of yellow paper. I felt a surge of excitement in that moment, realizing that I'd stumbled across a genuine message in a bottle. Now, messages in bottles aren't exactly a common thing these days due to the onset of instant global communication. But they do have a long and romantic history dating back centuries. You'll probably be familiar with the hit song by Sting and several movies on the theme, but the original concept dates back at least as far as the ancient Greeks. The basic idea is that you place a written note or communication in a sealed bottle, throw it out to sea, and eventually the bottled message will be carried by the ocean's currents and wash up on a shore somewhere, possibly on an entirely different continent. For obvious reasons, this isn't the most reliable or quickest form of communication but there is an incredible lore built around the bottled messages. In my young mind, I associated such messages with shipwrecks, hidden treasures, castaways, and long-distance romances. Therefore, I was almost shaking with anticipation as I lifted the bottle and forced open the cork to reach the note inside. I held images of an SOS message from a ship that sank decades ago or from somebody who was stranded on a desert island somewhere. Perhaps I could play a role in solving an ancient mystery or rescuing a castaway who'd been given up for dead. I would be a hero. Looking back now, it all seems rather ridiculous, but I was an 11-year-old boy yearning for adventure. At the very least, I thought I might establish a pen pal-type relationship with somebody living overseas, which would be exciting enough. But in reality, I had no inkling of what horrors I would unleash by unsealing that bottle. The bottle itself was unremarkable, made of thick, green-tinged, but transparent glass. It looked old, but there was no indication of how old it could be. Dry sand poured from its neck after I opened it, and I slid my index finger inside to fish out the note. The dog-eared parchment was delicate, so much so that I feared it would fall apart in my hands. Therefore, I was very careful. When I unrolled the paper, I discovered an undated letter written neatly in what appeared to be red ink. The ink was smudged in several places, making me think it had been written using an old-fashioned fountain pen or perhaps even a quill. The content itself was more or less in modern English, and both style and vocabulary made it seem like it was written by an educated person. Although, after reading the letter, I guess the author was little more than a child. Unfortunately, I have since lost the original letter, but I made a copy of it years ago, which I will transcribe here in full. Dear Sir, I hope this letter finds you in good health and spirits. 
I am writing in the hope of establishing a correspondence and perhaps forming a bond that stretches across the ocean. My name is Emily, and I live on a small island called Santiago with my mother and father. Our home is beautiful, but isolated and sometimes dangerous. Winters are long and cold, and we are plagued by wild beasts. Ferocious bears, as big as cows and white like a swan, and a beast as large as an ox which lives in our sea with two teeth in its mouth like those of an elephant. During the daylight hours, our island is covered with snow, with snow-white nesting birds, while a feathered umbrella of thousands more fly above and screech over our heads. Nights are a time for caution as demons stalk the land, hunting for victims, but we are too smart for them, as we always keep our hearth burning and our guns loaded, keeping the demons at bay. We come from hardy stock, you see. My ancestors were marooned here many years ago, punished for their love, and left to die in this unforgiving land. But they survived against the odds, starting a family and making this island their home. And here we have remained, cut off from the world, but free. For mortal men still fear to tread on this land, and ships avoid our treacherous shoreline. You may wonder why I am writing this account, good sir. I'll confess that I am sending this message without my parents' knowledge or consent. Please do not judge me too harshly for my small act of rebellion. As much as I love my parents, I do get very lonely, and I yearn for a connection with someone from the outside world. I should warn you, establishing a correspondence with me is not without risks. There are nefarious powers that wish to prevent such things. Nevertheless, I ask that you take the risk, good sir. Please tell me about your life, your family, and your home, your hopes and dreams. I wish to know everything. I cannot tell you the location of my island, and it doesn't appear on any man-made maps. What I can tell you is that any letter sealed in this bottle and set adrift on the sea will reach me, and I will write back. I sincerely look forward to hearing from you as soon as possible, good sir. Yours faithfully, Emily. I reread the note several times over, my hands still shaking as the seawater washed over my ankles and Skipper waited patiently by my side. Now, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, the bizarre letter contained a number of huge red flags, particularly the reference to demons in a mythical land. The most obvious explanation was that the note was an elaborate hoax, but I was a naive 11-year-old boy with a fertile imagination and a lust for adventure. And so, all this talk about a mystery island and lost legend got me excited. I desperately wanted to connect with this world and be part of this fantasy. I didn't tell any of my family members or friends about my discovery, not even my mom and dad. I don't know why exactly, I guess I thought that they wouldn't believe me or perhaps I just wanted to keep it as my own little secret. In any event, the next day I wrote a letter, sealed it in a bottle, and tossed it over the cliff's edge, watching as it was carried out to sea until the green glass disappeared under the waves. I didn't keep a copy of the letter, and I can't remember exactly what I wrote all those years ago. Needless to say, it was, this, it was the type of nonsense that an 11-year-old boy would ask, telling Emily about myself and where I lived, while asking her questions about her life on the island, which sounded much more interesting than mine. The fact that I threw the bottle into the ocean, expecting it to reach Emily, was obviously ridiculous. If you want to establish a correspondence with somebody using a message in a bottle, you provide your address and contact details on the letter, allowing the finder to respond by conventional methods. The odds of a bottled message being released at random and somehow making its way across thousands of miles of ocean 
back to its original sender, are virtually nil. Nevertheless, that's why I did. That's what I did. And I waited in vain to receive Emily's reply. As weeks, months, and eventually years passed by with no response, I was bitterly disappointed at the time. Nevertheless, I did some research on the contents of Emily's original note as I tried to find some evidence to verify her story. This wasn't the easiest thing to do in the days before Google and Wikipedia, but I pieced together the tale from various books and historical records I tracked down over the years. The name Santiago comes from the Portuguese word for devil, and is the name of a phantom island that appeared on maps of the North Atlantic during the 16th century. Also known as the Isle of Demons, this mysterious and intriguing little island was allegedly populated by a curious mixture of wild animals, mythological creatures, and evil spirits or demons, all of whom found common cause in tormenting civilized men. The location of the island differed depending upon the map, but it was widely believed to be somewhere off the coast of Newfoundland. There are many tales from the Isle of Demons, but the most famous is that of Marguerite de la Rouge, a French noblewoman who traveled on an expedition led by her uncle during the 1540s with the aim of establishing a colony in the New World. During the journey, Marguerite entered into a passionate love affair with one of the young officers on board. Her uncle discovered the illicit romance and punished his niece and her lover by putting them ashore on the dreaded Isle of Demons, where they were forced to fight for survival against savage beasts and evil spirits. The ultimate fate of Marguerite and her officer lover is unclear, with some accounts saying they were eventually rescued by a passing fishing boat, while others claim their spirits remain trapped on the island to this very day. Elements of Emily's letter matched up with that story. Other references were more difficult to explain, but I assumed what she described as wild beasts were in actual fact polar bears, walruses, and colonies of gannet birds. All being native to that region, it would make sense. But her talk of demons stalking the land at night were bizarre and unnerving. I spent many sleepless nights worrying about such things during my early teenage years, but when I got older I wrote it all off as a hoax and moved on with my life, doing the things adolescent boys do and planning for my future. I didn't hang around once I finished school, instead, moving to Edinburgh to attend university, where I lived life lived life to the fullest, while somehow attending enough lectures to obtain my degree. I wasn't ready to settle down into a 9-to-5 job straight after university, so I did what many Irish students do. <laughs> I took a gap year, traveling to live and work in Australia. I loved it out there, making new friends and entering into a string of short-lived but exciting relationship with those elusive Australian women. I was definitely enjoying my hedonistic party animal lifestyle and thought little of the odd experience I had during my childhood, but then something happened which defied all logical explanation. I was living in Sydney at the time. It was early on a Sunday morning and I'd been partying all night. I walked home along the beach just as the sun was rising, nursing one hell of a hangover as I staggered across the sands. My plan was to go back to my place and get a couple hours of sleep, but faith, fate intervened. I stopped dead in my tracks when I saw it, literally rubbing my eyes in disbelief. There it was, half buried in the sand right by the water's edge, the green bottle washed up to shore. I experienced a cold chill as I looked upon it and his memories from my childhood came flooding back. From a distance, the bottle looked identical to the one that I'd found on the beach in Ireland ten years before. 
but it must be a coincidence, I told myself. I was thousands of miles away from my home, on the coastline of an entirely different ocean. There was just no way it was possible. I reassured myself as I looked up and down on the beach, before I cautiously made my way along the sands, reaching out to grab the bottle with a shaking hand. On closer inspection, I was astonished to find the bottle was totally identical to the one I'd discovered years before, even down to the cork sealing it tight. And right enough, when I glanced through the transparent green glass, I saw a dog-eared yellow note rolled up inside. I felt a mixture of intense emotions in that moment, but most of all, a dreadful sense of foreboding. I became paranoid, having the distinct feeling that I was being watched. But when I scanned the beach again, I saw I was on my own. Part of me wanted to throw the bottle back out to sea and never think about it again, but I found I couldn't do so. I don't know why, but I had an uncontrollable urge to open the bottle and read the note contained inside. I knew I might not like what I read, but nevertheless I had to know the truth. I carefully removed the delicate parchment from the bottle, unrolling it to reveal the same handwriting I'd read ten years before. However, the tone of the letter was noticeably darker. Dear Sir, thank you for replying to my letter. You cannot know how much it means to me. I very much enjoyed reading about your home and family. Ireland sounds like a wonderful place. I would love to visit someday. Alas, I no longer think this will be possible, for you see, my family situation has deteriorated since last I wrote. My mother and father have become ill. I don't know whether their illness is of the mortal world or if they've been cursed by supernatural entities. In any event, they are often weak and thus unable to maintain our defenses during the long, dark nights. Therefore, it has been my task alone to keep the fire burning and the monsters at bay. The mortal beasts are vulnerable to spear and bullet, but not the demons. The night is their time. I see their shadows circling our cabin during the midnight hour, searching for weaknesses, always looking for a way in. And I hear their unholy roars through the storm, the hellish din shaking me to my very core. The demons allow me no respite. Their attacks are constant. I cannot remember the last time I slept. I am terrified, and I am exhausted, but I must continue to fight for my parents and my family's legacy. When I feel my courage falter, I think of my ancestor, Marguerite, and she gives me strength. God does not dwell in this place, and so I must survive on my own wits. I am sorry to be the bearer of such grim news, good sir. I do hope you will write back. Your last letter bolstered my spirits whenever, whenever I received it and the thought of continuing our correspondence gives me hope for the future. I wish you all the best fortune, and look forward to hearing from you. Yours faithfully and forever, Emily. I stood there in a state of shock for what seemed like an eternity, reading the note over and over again, as I tried in vain to make some sense of it all. There just wasn't any logical explanation, that I could fathom at least. Had somebody been stalking me for the last ten years, waiting for their chance to drop the bottle in my path, but how? How would they do it, and why? Why would somebody follow me to the other side of the world to play such an elaborate trick? It made no sense. But the only other alternative was that the note was genuine and Emily was real. I left the beach when the morning surfers began to arrive. I still felt extremely uneasy, but I'd recovered from my initial shock and devised a plan. I had a friend living in Sydney who was studying for his master's degree in archaeology at the University of New South Wales. 
He had access to lab equipment, and after some bribery, I persuaded him to carry out carbon dating on the letter. I didn't tell him the full story, simply claiming I'd found the letter inside the cover of an old book and was curious about its origins. It took a couple of days for the results to come through, which was a tense wait during which I could think of little else. I snatched the envelope out of his hands when he came to me. The results were unbelievable. The age of the parchment was impossible to determine with with 100% accuracy, but it was at least a century old and perhaps dated back hundreds of years. What's more, the ink used to write the letter wasn't actually ink, but dried blood. My heart froze when I read that report, as it seemed to confirm my worst fears. My friend made no comment on the letter's content. I got the distinct feeling he wanted to hand over the results and wash his hands of the whole affair. I didn't blame him, but unfortunately, I didn't have the option of walking away from this. I couldn't stop thinking about Emily's letter and her chilling words. Who was she, and where was she? How could it be possible for a letter written centuries ago to be addressed to me? I had never believed in the supernatural, but what other explanation could there be? I spent many sleepless nights thinking about Emily and her horrific situation. The thought of this young woman alone, her parents sick as she fought to protect her home against demons. What kind of hell was she living in? What had this poor girl done to deserve such a terrible fate? I thought long and hard about my response going through several drafts before finally sealing the note and tossing the bottle out to sea. I really did want to help Emily and felt certain there must be some way I could save her. I guess you could call it a white knight fantasy, but I was coming from a genuine place. I didn't receive a response by the time I left Australia, but I had a feeling Emily's reply would find me eventually. I lived through the rest of my twenties before I heard from her again. I won't claim that I spent a decade pining after Emily and dwelling upon the contents of her letter. I lived my life, traveling, working various jobs, making and losing friends, and entering into several love affairs, none of which lasted very long. I never did settle down. Instead, I moved from place to place. I had some good times, for sure, but the darkness stayed with me. I never did forget about Emily in the Isle of Demons, about that poor girl fighting to save her family. I thought about her more and more the closer it came to the anniversary, and I knew where I needed to be during the summer of 2011. Newfoundland. I spent weeks out there on the North Atlantic coastline, chartering fishing boats at great expense to visit and search the isolated and often uninhabited small islands north of Newfoundland, including all of those rumored to be the true location of the legendary Isle of Demons, but I found nothing. I don't know what else I expected, but deep down, I knew I would never find Emily, at least not in this world. On my last day on the island, I decided to walk the beach close to my hotel. I was only mildly surprised when I saw it. The green bottle washed to the shore, with the inevitable note carefully rolled up inside. I knew the routine by now. Not that this made things any easier. My heart was beating fast in my chest, and my hands shook as I reached out to recover the message. The first thing I noticed was how Emily's writing had deteriorated from her last letter. For a woman who wrote her correspondence in blood, her penmanship had always been exemplary. But this time, around it was little more than a scribble and barely legible. Clearly she'd written this note in a hurry or in a state of distress, and probably both. This didn't bode well. I had a genuine sense of dread as I read her words, and what she wrote was this. Good sir. 
I can't thank you enough for your kind letter. You seem like a good man, and I have no doubt you would come to my aid if you could. I can feel your presence. You are so close, yet might as well be on the far side of the moon. I never regarded myself as a shrinking violet or a damsel in distress needing to be rescued. Far from it. Ever since I was young, I have fought hard to survive, and I will continue to fight until my last breath. But alas, I fear my time is almost at an end. My beloved parents have passed away. I can't remember when they died exactly. Time has a way of playing tricks on you in this godforsaken place. I know my father passed first, my mother soon after. I buried them both in the cold, hard ground because it was all that I could do. I'm all on my own now, and I'm so very tired. There was a storm last night. It's, been, it's the worst one yet that I've seen. The hailstones lashed down on the rocks from dusk to dawn. And the winds were so heavy, I feared our little cabin would be blown to kingdom come. They came shortly after midnight. Their hellish cries so loud they drowned out every other sound. I struggled so hard to keep the hearth alight and the barricades up, but in the end my strength faltered. We broke through. I don't believe I have the words to describe the evil I encountered in that moment. A minion of hell? Most definitely. A demon? Quite possibly. But the creature did not appear in the form I would have imagined. It took the shape of a man dressed in dark robes, a hood covering his head. He stood in my open doorway, the wind and rain beating down heavily behind him, but there wasn't a drop on him. I should have defended myself. Normally, I wouldn't have hesitated, but in that moment, I was frozen in fear. I watched on in terror as he slowly reached up with his bony right hand, removing his hood to reveal the horrors which lay underneath. I expected to see his face, but instead there was nothing but darkness, a black, empty void that shook me to my very core. It felt like my immortal soul would get sucked out into that damn void, and there was nothing I could do to save myself. I was entirely at this monster's mercy, but just as I prepared for the end, he spoke to me. I don't know how, as he had no mouth, but yet he did. His voice was so deep and raspy, and bore no resemblance of that to any mortal man. He just spoke two words, saying, Not tonight. And in the blink of an eye he was gone, disappearing into thin air, leaving the open doorway and the storm behind him. I was spared last night, but I strongly suspect the demon will not allow me to live for much longer. My time is coming, and I must make my peace. I do appreciate your kindness and your compassion, good sir. Your letters have brought me joy in these dark times, and I do hope you will write me one last time before I meet my end. Take care, good sir. Yours faithfully and forever, Emily. There were tears in my eyes when I read her words. I couldn't bear it. To know Emily was going through hell and there was nothing I could do to help her. My thirties weren't a good time for me. I never did get back on an even footing and my life slowly fell apart. I couldn't commit to a job or a relationship and instead drifted, cutting myself off from family and friends and turning to alcohol and drugs to dull my pain. I guess depression was something I'd always have to deal with, but Emily's letters, the last one in particular, cast a dark shadow over me, one I was never able to escape. My depression grew worse the closer I got to my 41st birthday. It had been 30 years since I'd received my first letter from Emily, and her replies had always found me every 10 years, no matter where I was. I could have gone anywhere in the world to mark this grim milestone, but I chose to come home, back to the same beach where it all began. The old place has changed a lot over the last three decades. My mom and dad both passed away years ago, and my old family home has been sold on, meaning I've had to stay in a rented cottage. 
This part of the coastline has become something of a tourist trap in recent years, and the beach I used to walk is now packed with summer holidayers. The truth is I don't have much of a connection to the west coast of Ireland these days, but I still hold on to a few happy memories. I walked the beach early this morning, avoiding the crowds and keeping my eyes on the shoreline. I wasn't at all surprised when I saw it, the ominous green bottle sticking up from the sand. Taking a deep breath, I strode forward, my back creaking as I reached down to grab the glass bottle. I dreaded the prospect of reading the note. Emily had revealed true horrors to me ten years ago, but I doubted her situation had improved in the time since. But yet, I had to read her letter. I'd spent the last ten years waiting for this. I felt faint as I unrolled the yellow parchment and read what turned out to be my destiny. And in the end, Emily's final letter was a short one, and what she wrote was this. I'm so sorry, good sir. You'll never know how much. You're a good man, and you don't deserve this. They made me do this, you see. I wish my strength had held, but I've reached my limit. They know about you now, and they're coming for you. Watch for the storm on the horizon. That's when you'll know they're close. I wish I could do more to repay your kindness, good sir, but in the end our demons will always win. Godspeed, sir. I pray that you find the peace which has eluded me. Yours faithfully and forever, Emily. So that's that. I'm no longer a bystander observing events from afar. The horrors are coming to me. I don't blame Emily, not at all. In some ways, I think I was always destined to suffer this terrible fate. I can see the storm now, coming in from the ocean and heading straight for me. It's the worst I've ever witnessed, a sky filled with ominous black clouds, terrifying thunder and flashes of lightning, and winds of hurricane force. And above the almighty din, I can hear them. I can hear their hellish roars and their cruel, inhuman laughter. The demons, they're coming for me. I could try running, but deep down I know there's no escape. I wonder how many, how much different my life would have been if I hadn't found that bottle all those years ago. Maybe I would have been spared, or perhaps not. I wish I could give you some answers, but this is all I've got. My time is nearly up. I can hear the windows rattling under the sheer force of the winds. And I can see their dark shapes emerging from the clouds. To echo Emily's words, I just hope that I can find peace. God damn it, I love that writer. And on that note, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Halloween special of the Anthology of Horror. Please be sure to tune in tomorrow for another episode. And if you could take the time to rate me five stars on the Apple Podcast Store or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It doesn't cost any money, but it helps the search algorithm quite a bit. So uh, please take the time to do it. I would greatly appreciate it. All right, squad. Thanks for listening. And until tomorrow... Stay spooky.